um, turn. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Psalms right there in the dead middle of the Bible, somewhere close. Psalm 40 is where we will be tonight. Um, as we look at um, at what I am calling um, a, a psalm that shows that God is the deliverer of the ordinary believer. Um, God is the deliverer of the ordinary believer. Uh, many times we read stories uh, for encouragement. Uh, maybe you've seen some of these uh, series of Christian biographies that you can get, and I think homeschooling families really highlight these as a whole set of biographies of people who have done great and noteworthy things. But the reality is that for most believers, most believers live incredibly ordinary lives. They're not marked by necessarily martyrdom on the foreign mission field, not necessarily marked by um, you know, leading these grand revival meetings like Billy Graham or something like that, and the Lord has been pleased to use those people. But over 99% of the Christian life is done in obscurity and is done in just quiet faithfulness of ordinary people who are living out their vocations and their calls as believers where they are. And this psalm goes through, I think, in a very compact way. It deals with so much of the experience of the ordinary believer. Uh, and so I just want to draw out a few principles here that I hope might be encouraging to you as you, um, as you seek to follow the Lord wherever he has placed you. These are evergreen things. These are super helpful things, uh, truths that uh, never really go out of style, and we always need to take up and remember every day. So we're going to begin in the first three verses where we see that the psalmist here, David, presents God as a God who answers and who delivers many times after a period of waiting. We don't like that word, waiting, do we? You know this uh, Amazon distribution center down here that's, that's going to go online sometime in the near future between here and, and exit four? It's going to, I mean, I don't know what that's going to do to our delivery times, but I have to imagine that it's going to be incredibly possible to get something way too fast. You know, once these things open up, you can already get stuff way too fast. I'll get on Amazon and I'll order something and it'll say seven to ten days and it'll be there like the next day sometimes, I guess, depending on which warehouse it was sitting in. We don't like waiting because we are so used to not doing it anymore. Uh, we can feel inconvenienced when we are made to wait. But look what verses one through three say about this reality of waiting with the Lord. It says this in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We see this great word of testimony where, where the psalmist paints a picture. Clearly, he's not in a literal bog, a miry bog. I remember being in a bog one time. I had a friend growing up. His name was Paxton. And I would go over to Paxton's 
house and then we would go over to his grandpa's house and his grandpa had this this big huge spread of property uh, out in the woods and down at the bottom of a big hill was a pond and it was a spring fed pond and and up near where the spring and the at the, at the head of the pond where the spring was uh, we could walk around down in this just marsh and these, these bog and I remember putting on some rubber boots and we would just go you know squish 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 and I remember getting a little too deep in one time and just the only way I knew how to get out like I couldn't lift my feet out you know the suction and I had to had to get out by leaving the boots stuck in that marsh in that miry bog you know just kind of had to do the army crawl out of there but this is the picture that that the psalmist paints he said he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making it secure. He put a new song in my mouth. You can imagine the beauty of, of um, maybe times in your lives when, when the Lord has felt incredibly cr- close and you have just not known what to do other than to stop and sing to him and to praise him. Well, the beautiful thing about this great picture of testimony that David gives is that the sweetness of what he got to only came through waiting. He waited patiently for the Lord. I don't think we should miss that. There's this idea of trusting the Lord in the midst of when it seems to be going wrong. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. See, we don't like waiting, but the Bible presents it as something that is sweet. We often don't experience, I think, the sweetness of the Lord because we're too impatient to wait patiently with Him. You can go to the, you can't really go to the Christian bookstore anymore. Some, you know, some of the little mom and pop ones are, are still open, but you can't go to Lifeway and, and get a devotion. But I remember when you could... You could go back to the little devotional section and you could find one and it would say something like two-minute devotions for busy dads or something like that. You know. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, two minutes is better than not spending any time with the Lord, so don't get me wrong. But I guess what I'm saying is there's a sweetness with the Lord that only comes through sitting and dwelling with Him. I was just reading this week about a, a man in the first great awakening whose name I can't remember, but he desperately wanted assurance of salvation. I think it's something that we all struggle with from time to time. And he was perplexed about having assurance of his salvation. And so what he did was he went outside, and I can't remember if the story said he went into the woods or, or into a field, but he went outside off by himself and prayed for two hours, and sometime in the course of that two hours of sitting there with the Lord in prayer, the Lord gave him assurance of salvation. Now, the point is this. Whenever we wait on the Lord, it is never a bad investment. It feels like it is. feels like a waste of time, if we're honest in our, in our flesh. It feels like prayer is a waste of time. It feels like waiting on the Lord. Why are you waiting? Get up and do something. Waiting on the Lord is never a bad investment, though. He rewards those who place their trust in Him and who are willing to patiently wait on Him. And this waiting produces a kind of fruit. Look in the next couple of verses, verses 4 and 5. It says this, in language that is very... It reminds us of Psalm 1. We may go back and read Psalm 1, but look what verses 4 and 5 say. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, 
who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wonderful deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Notice what he says here in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. In other words, this is the testimony of David coming out of a time of waiting on the Lord and seeing him to be good and seeing him to be trustworthy. It's as if he's saying in verse 4, this was a good idea. I'm glad I waited on the Lord. And now that I'm on the other side of it, I can say, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who... Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what does he do? And on his law, he meditates day and night. Meditation is not something you do quickly. And then look at the picture in verse 3, Psalm chapter 1. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all he does it prospers the wicked are not so they are like chaff that the wind drives away the image that he gives here is a tree trees grow slowly but they grow as long as they're close to a source of water I was listening you know, I don't know if, if I don't know how broadly this news has traveled I don't know if I know about it because I lived in South Carolina or if I know about it just because it's national news, but are y'all familiar? Yeah, are y'all familiar with the, the the Murdoch trial? Okay, that family. Okay, so it's in the you know the, in the Low Country there, Alex or Alec Murdoch. Uh, anyway, he's on trial for uh, for double murder, and one of the pieces of evidence that was presented, uh, you know, is is the sound evidence and the decibels of a gunshot and all this stuff, and and it gets super technical and super out into the weeds. Well, uh, one one of the the attorneys was trying to to say, well, you know, um, trees grow, don't they? And the witness said, well. Yeah, generally. He said, well, how much taller were the trees now when you went out and did your, your testing on the sound testing than when they were a year and a half ago when the murders took place? And all the, you know, just, just out in the weeds on, on how trees grow and stuff. But the reality is, I mean, some trees grow faster than others, but trees grow. Their growth is more slow and steady than quick and surprising. And what David is saying here, I think, if you weave these things together, is blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. It's a good long game investment, waiting on God. Um, and then, in verse 5, there's another piece of fruit that we'll talk about in a minute. The result of this kind of life produces a desire to tell others. Look at verse 5. I will proclaim and tell of them. The last part of verse 5. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In other words, God's good works are more than can be told, but I will proclaim them. It's a fruit that arises from waiting on the Lord, finding Him to be sweet, coming out on the other side, wanting to sing His praises and wanting to tell other people about Him. Number three, God is interested in the heart, not outward appearance. God is interested in the heart and not outward appearance. Look at verses 6 through 8. 
In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. This is beautiful, and I'm actually going to be talking about this more on Sunday night in answer to to a question about the change of heart uh, that God brings that Charles Spurgeon spoke about in, in Ezekiel 36 there. But the reality is, is this. God is not impressed with dry, heartless ritual. He's more impressed with the fruits of that new heart that he plants inside of us. The foolishness of the Old Testament people who thought that they could please God by jumping through hoops, thought they could please God by doing the right actions through dry rituals. Listen to John Trapp. This is on your your page there in italics. Uh, John Trapp uh, wrote this a long time ago. When hypocrites thought to bribe God by cold ceremonies, they were rejected. Christ is the end of the law to all that believe. That Lamb of God, slain from the beginning of the world, is the only expiatory sacrifice. That just means it takes sin away. It expiates our sin. It takes it away. And the foundation of that forementioned blessedness. See, the difference between a true believer and a false believer is found in the law. Those outside of Christ still might try to please God with outward actions, right? But those that God has changed, they have God's law written on their hearts, Jeremiah 31 says. It's no longer written outside of us like, a list of things that we need to do to please God. Instead, it's written on our hearts. And now we obey not out of obligation. We now obey God not because we have to, but because we want to. That's the change that God does in our hearts. Not, no longer are God's rules something that we try to keep out of drudgery. Instead, they are inside of us, and it's our joy to obey God. That's the the changed heart that Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 speak of. Number four, changed lives tell others. Changed lives tell others. Now we touched on this a moment ago when the text brought it up, but now the text foregrounds it. The text puts it right in the crosshairs of, of this passage. It says this in verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance. In the great congregation, behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So there, there's a deep sense that we get here from what David is saying in this, in this psalm that, that speaking of the gospel is not just an idea to him. Like this gospel, this good news, changes the believer. And it causes us to want to tell other people about it. 
See, there's, there's definitely something going on here with David saying, I've proclaimed it, I've told it outward, but I want, you to point, I want to point out another word to you. Look at verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Something about the gathering of the people of God. And he mentions it again in verse 10, the very end. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So I think two things are going on here. One, believers who have been changed by God desire to tell other people, for sure. But we also desire to rehearse what has happened in our hearts among other believers. Friends, when we get together on Sunday morning or even on Wednesday night like this, when we get together on Sunday morning and we sing the words that are on the screen or the words that are in our hymnals, I think we are fulfilling what the Bible talks about here. We are encouraging one another. We, when we sing these words, we're not simply singing to God. We're singing in the presence of one another, saying, yes, this gospel that changed me changed you too. That gospel that changed you, it changed me. And we're singing together about what God has done in our life. And friends, I think that the, the singing of the congregation is incredibly powerful. It's not just a dry ritual that we do. It's incredibly deep and meaningful. Uh, number five on the back. Here's another principle. The principle is pray what is true during turmoil. Pray what is true of God. Look what David does here. He confesses what is true of God. Verse 11 and 12. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. That, that's a prayer of confidence. He's saying, God, this is what you are like. Do we think that God needs to be informed of what he's like? No. What David is doing here is David is rehearsing what is true of God as an act of praise. Preaching to himself. He's, he's preaching to himself in this song. Which that, that's what psalms were originally, or songs. He's, he's preaching this truth to himself in order to remind himself of who God is. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. So not only am I being attacked from outside, I remember that my biggest problem is on my inside. Evils have overtaken me and so have my own sins. My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Have you ever been so neck deep in a situation that you feel like you can't see past the end of your hand? You know? I think what David is saying here is in the midst of craziness, what we're supposed to do is to go back to the scriptures, to remember what is true of God, and to keep preaching it to ourselves. Keep preaching what is true. Here's what I'm tempted to do in the midst of struggle. I'm tempted to sit there and say, God, would you help me be different than I am? God, would you help me to have more faith? God, would you help me to trust you? Instead of just sitting there and saying, God, you are trustworthy. God, you are mighty. You are powerful. In other words, just pray what is true of God. There's nothing wrong with praying, God, I'm, I'm weak. Would you, would you supplement my weakness? You know, Lord, I, 
I don't know what to do. Would you give me directions? Nothing wrong with that. But the pattern that we get right here in verses 11 and 12 is in the midst of craziness, in the midst of turmoil, when your life is upside down, find out what is true of God and keep rehearsing that, preaching that to yourself day by day. And that's how you find your way out. That's how we walk until we can see where we're walking. Lastly, number six, the source of our hope. Look at verse 17. This is so beautiful. We could, just, we could preach a whole summer from verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. See that? Kind of this great summary of how David considers himself. The psalmist doesn't put any... David doesn't put any confidence in his track record. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the Lord's anointed. doesn't put any confidence in that. He puts no confidence in his track record, in his previous faithfulness. No confidence in his status or his skill or how many guys he has in his band. No confidence in his wealth or in his influence. Instead, he refers to himself as poor and needy. And friends... We need this recognition too. You know why? Let's look what the Sermon on the Mount says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who know that they are spiritually impoverished. We have nothing to bring to God. We have no goodness that would make us acceptable to him. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they have nothing. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Friends, the path toward godliness goes through the tunnel of recognizing our own poverty. Only when we realize deeply that we have nothing and we can offer nothing to God do we really get a grasp of how beautiful the gospel is. And I pray that that would be the knowledge that would go with you tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you as poor and needy people. We have nothing, we have no good deeds that we can say, hey Lord, look at me, you need to save me. You, I, I deserve to, to be in your family because look at the good I've done or, or look at the bad that I haven't done. Instead, Lord, we have nothing. We come to you poor and needy, blind and broken. I pray that that really would be how we view ourselves spiritually, so that we can see that in Christ we get everything we need. That even though we were spiritually poor, he was rich. And he offers to give us his riches. Jesus offers to give us his goodness and to take our badness if we would place our faith in him and his work that he did for us on the cross. Lord, I pray that this understanding would help us to walk humbly so that we could go through just the, the, the ordinary stuff that happens in the ordinary lives of ordinary Christians and do it in a way that honors you, as Psalm 40 has talked about from end to end. 
Lord, I pray that you would do this work. Pray, God, for those who are here tonight, those who didn't make it, uh, those I, I know who the weather kept them in. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, just bless, uh, gracious, that you would greatly bless our church. I pray that you would help us to reach um, those around us who need to hear the message of the gospel. But I pray that we would carry that message of the gospel in a way that makes Jesus look good. I pray, Lord, that you would do your work among us. Make us a little more like Jesus this week. We pray in his name. Amen.